Hey there, and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to The Mason Jar with Cindy Rollins. And coming up in a minute, we'll have Cindy's interview with Sally Thomas about poetry in the home. Uh, Sally is a award-winning poet who lives in North Carolina, where she homeschools her family um, and is a big advocate for Charlotte Mason's uh, educational philosophies. She's been published in places like First Things, The New Yorker, The New Republic, uh, the Southern Poetry Review, and many other places. And we're really excited to have this interview uh, coming up with, uh, with her and Cindy. They're going to talk about um, the best ways to, uh, to, to put poetry into practice in the home and to cultivate an appreciation for poetry in, in your students. But before we get to that, I want to say a couple quick things. I want to say thank you to everyone who donated uh, to us here at Cersei over the last month or two. Um, we met our goal of $10,000. We've actually raised about $14,000 thanks to you. So that means that that is going to be matched by both of our both of our two matching donors up to $10,000. So it's going to be a huge help going into the new year, especially as we fund uh, shows like this one, like the Mason Jar, uh, here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Also wanted to say quickly that if you head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from, you can find a separate feed just for the Mason Jar. So type in the Mason Jar in the search bar and you can subscribe to that by itself. We will continue to post episodes on the main Cersei Podcast Network feed. So if you're more interested in getting all of our podcasts in one place, you can feel free to continue to, continue to do so. But we also wanted to make sure that for people who mainly listen to the Mason Jar uh, or who just want to have a separate place for all the shows, that you'll be able to find that there. So again, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts and type in the, the Mason Jar. And of course, you can still continue to get all of the great Mason Jar content uh, over at thirstyinstitute.org slash media or slash podcast. And without further ado, let's get you over to Cindy's interview with poet Sally Thomas. Enjoy. I'm here today with Sally Thomas, and I'm very excited to talk to her. Uh, and we're going to talk today about poetry. Uh, it, it has turned out that finding someone to talk about poetry has been much, much harder than I anticipated when um, I started the podcast. I have been looking for almost a year and a half for someone who was really able to articulate um, um, and love poetry. And now I found Sally, and I'm so excited about talking to her. Not only does she like to talk about poetry, she is a poet. Um, she's written uh, many, many poems and has several books out. And, and Sally, uh, what is your late, latest book that you've, you have poems that you've had published? Okay, this is a brand new book. It just um, actually appeared last month. It's a chapbook, which is a small collection of poems. It's about 25 pages. And it's called Rakeldus of Walsingham. And it's a long poem that is based on a, a legend that's connected to a place in the east of England, a little town, a little village, really, in Norfolk, that was the site of some religious visions that um, a woman just before the Norman conquest of 1066 prayed for and received these visions and the result was that the place became a medieval pilgrimage site and so it's had this long and interesting history and so this is a poem in a lot of sections that's rooted in that story I guess is the shortest way that I can put it <laughs> wow that's that's fascinating so when did you first hear the story I first heard it actually really 
I went to this place. It's, it is a village called Walsingham and it's in North Norfolk. And I've been there twice. Once when my husband and our then two-year-old child, our oldest child went to England for him to do a study course and we made a pilgrimage there. And that was really my first encounter with the place, which I found really fascinating, really kind of poignant. Um, it was a place whose atmosphere I, I carried in my mind with me for a long time after I left. And we moved to England in 1999 and went back to Walsingham again in early 2000, mostly because we wanted to say thank you because we had moved to England with our, by that time, two little children and we didn't have any housing lined up. And so my husband has developed this special devotion to what he calls Our Lady of Perpetual Accommodation because by some miracle, <laughs> we ended up with a place to live. So um, again, I just the atmosphere of this place and its ancientness and the idea of b belief persisting there, even through all of the tumult of things like the English Reformation, wars, you know, all of this upheaval that is that is an inev inevitable part of history. Um, I don't know. There was something about this tiny little peaceful place that really fascinated me. So it stuck with you for a long time, it sounds like, and was just kind of brewing over the years. And then suddenly, I mean, obviously not suddenly, but then it eventually you um, were able to write this long um, poem about it. That, Well, I look forward to reading that. Um, and, and before we get a little bit ahead of ourselves, um, my, myself, <laughs> um, <laughs> tell us about your family. So you are a homeschooling mom, is that correct? That's right. Um, we started homeschooling in 2003 when we moved back from England to the States. And sort of all the backstory of that is, is kind of long and involved. But um, we began when my oldest daughter, who's now almost 23, was nine. And uh, my second child was five. And we had also a one-year-old. And we had a baby in the middle of that year. So that was our first year of homeschooling. It was total chaos. Um, <laughs> And so at this point, I have my 23-year-old is now a teacher in a classical charter school in Texas. And my now 19-year-old is a cadet at the Virginia Military Institute. And my 13- and 14-year-olds are still right here with me. Okay, and so you're still homeschooling them. And you do right. homeschool them using Charlotte Mason's um, ideas. Is that correct? That's correct. And so how did you hear about Charlotte Mason? So you came from England. Did you know about Charlotte Mason um, at that point? Or, or did you find out about her when you started um, looking into home education? Well, I started looking into home education. And our last year there, our, our oldest daughter's school experience was tanking um, for various reasons. And it seemed to me, and this was, homeschooling was the last thing I was ever going to do. It was what crazy people did. I had been a classroom teacher, and even though I had come away from my own public school teaching experience thinking, I'm not doing this with my kids. Um, when the time came, I mean, we moved to England, I sent my daughter right to school because that was what you did. So when things started to go kind of pear-shaped, I guess, I spent the last year that we lived in England thinking about what our options were going to be and praying about them. and 
I don't know, home education just kind of kept intruding on my consciousness as maybe something even a sane person could do. And that maybe <laughs> in this instance, it might be the sane thing to do. So I started doing research. And so long story short, yes, I did actually encounter Charlotte Mason while I was living in England, but only in the sense of doing a lot of internet research and looking at philosophies. I don't think it even had occurred to me that there were like philosophies of home education, that this was even like a thing until, I don't know, I went to some big homeschoolings like you've never heard you you know you don't know anything about homeschooling start here this is the homeschooling website about everything and here are some philosophies and that was the one that really appealed to me because I thought well this is really different from the experience my kids are having in school first of all and if I were going to describe an excellent mm -hmm. education this is exactly what it would look like this is even better than what I would think of on my own. So it was in the back of my mind. We didn't actually even start moving in that direction. I mean, our first two years were just like a sabbatical. We had made this transatlantic move. We had done this free fall back to our hometown. We had a baby. It was, you know, my husband was out of work for a while. We, you know, it was just like chaos. And it, you know, it took me a couple of years to kind of, get to the point where I thought, okay, you know, we really can't go on in this chaos mode. And that was when I started sort of moving more seriously in a Charlotte Mason direction. So you were already a poetess. You were already writing poetry all these years. I mean, how, how long ago did you start writing poetry um, yourself before you home ed were home educating? Probably the first the first poems that I really can remember writing, I was probably in the ninth grade. And up to that point, I mean, probably starting in about the third or fourth grade, I decided, well, I, in first grade, I kind of decided mentally that I just needed to check out of school because it was really boring. I had to be there in body, but they <laughs> couldn't make my mind be there which I was a great student. <laughs> I was like the least educable child any of my teachers had ever encountered. But um, in about the third or fourth grade, you know, I, I started writing stories in notebooks. And so I was the kid, I, you know, I was one of those little girls that loved horses. So I filled notebooks with these fantastic stories about these horses that did, you know, heroic things. And a friend and I would, you know, we would sort of play these stories when we played. So that's the first really writing that I remember doing. And it was just what I did when I went to school. Um, and you know, through middle school, I was doing this. But somehow in ninth grade, I think, you know, I remember reading E.E. E. Cummings' poetry, which, you know, you encounter at about that age, if not before, and going, yes. look, no capital letters. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so, you know, I was like Little Miss E. e. Cummings for about a year. Um, but that was when I really started writing poems and began to pay attention to them and really be interested in reading them in a serious way and also in making them. Thinking about, you know, how do you make this? You know, the poet William Carlos Williams calls a poem a, a small or large machine made of words. And even though I didn't know this definition at the time, I think I was fascinated with the way that you could make something with words 
and it would just sort of run along and have its a life on its own and you know you could do that with relatively few words um, so high school was really when I started yeah, it's there. fascinating it's fascinating to me that you, what you're speaking of is imitation. When you, when you came across E.M. E. Cummings, you weren't, um, somebody wasn't, you know, pounding it in your head besides just you were reading the poems and then right. suddenly you're, you're imitating them on your own. You're, you're, you're playing with that style and you're going on it. And I really think that's what happens a lot with poetry, um, or maybe what should happen a lot, much more than us, you know, um, tearing poems apart to get get all this deep um read into them maybe things that aren't there i i know my son my son is in public school this year and and you know he came home the other day and said something like i hate the way they teach english and he's reading excellent i, I he's in honors classes he's right. reading excellent works but they're approaching it in such a way that it's making him hate them rather than love them which is a big big negative Right, um, right. So, so do your do your children? Um, do you, they were at this time before you were homeschooling them? Were you teaching them poetry or reading poetry as a family? We've always read poetry, um, just as a, because we've always read kind of everything together. And you know, I was one of those people, you know, reading to your child in the womb, you know, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I was trying, you know, you had asked me this when we were messaging back and forth, and I was trying to think of the things that were really a part of our life when the children were little. And certainly, I mean, I have vivid memories of nursery rhymes with my children. Just, I mean, I grew up on nursery rhymes, too, as a, as a child. And, you know, I have this vivid memory of, I mean, you can just insert whichever child it is here, you know, bouncing the baby up and down on your foot saying, ride a cock horse to Banbury Cross to see a fine lady upon a white horse. And you're bouncing in rhythm with the words. And then, you know, I usually made them kind of almost fall off at the end. And that was funny. But, you know, that's doing poetry with a child. <laughs> you know, nursery rhymes are our first poetry. So... You know, there's something where, you know, we're enjoying, I mean, we don't really, like, we don't want to know the story of the lady and her white horse. We don't want to know her emotions. We don't know, want to know what she's supposed to stand for. She's just part of the music of what you're doing. And you're, you know, you're hearing, you know, these words that make music together. You're feeling this rhythm as you're bouncing up and down. So, I mean, we did a lot of that. We did a lot of, um... I mean, like everybody, you know, there were the books that we read obsessively to the point where we could say them in our sleep. I mean, mm -hmm. you either love or you hate Goodnight Moon, right? Um, exactly. <laughs> people, people have strong, but you know, I think Margaret Wise Brown was a genius. Um, I mean, I love as much as, you know, after a while, oh my gosh, anything, please don't make me read Goodnight Moon again. But in all of her books, I mean, they, you know, they're like stories. You're turning the page, but they read like poems. I mean, they have rhyme built in. And it's funny because it comes up in really unschematic ways, but it's like she's going to, you know, she's going to follow this association of sound. And that's really almost like the there's not a story with a plot. There's you're following sound through her, you know, through her books. Um, and I could recite you, <laughs> you know, lots of it even now. But 
Yeah, I talk about that a lot because you do with your storybooks and poems, you you end up memorizing them just quite accidentally uh, to where, you you know, they really are in your heart. My husband and I, we we had a really funny experience with Goodnight Moon in our family because I would always read it to the kids and then I'd say goodnight to the old lady whispering and I'd say, (laughs) hush real soft and sweet well he was right. reading it to the kids and he and he just naturally said good night to the old lady whispering hush and um, <laughs> I probably just broke the microphone but um, it was just <laughs> completely funny. different story suddenly and, right. and I could hear his mom saying hush she's a she was a southern woman and um, I, I I just heard her voice immediately when he did that and it was just one of those funny family moments over that book <laughs> That is funny. My kids always like that, you know, where you're saying goodnight to everybody, the goodnight nobody and the blank page, and then goodnight mush, goodnight to the old lady whispering. And that little, like, moment of surprise. And she does, you know, it's like she's modulating her music from page to page. Um, I don't know. I just, I think they're brilliant for getting that sense of just the joy of language in somebody's ear, because that's really what drives poetry and what makes it distinctive um, as opposed to prose, that it is Mm -hmm. concerned not just with what it's saying or the ideas that it's bodying over, but I mean, what makes it different from your history book is that it's concerned with making a song out of it somehow. And I Mm -hmm. think even poems that are, you know, not traditionally rhymed and metered, still, you know, have that sense of music about them, that they're good poems. Right. There is a flow. And I guess some much of children's literature follows follows on the the heels of nursery rhymes and, and, and very good, like you're saying, very lasting authors are really taking advantage or just maybe quite naturally in their spirit um, coming along with that meter and that. So, so really, um, reading nursery so teaching poetry would not be that different um than reading nursery rhymes to your children how how would you move um from from nursery rhymes to say more more structured poetry in a family well um i don't know it's hard to to you know articulate a really hard and fast way i mean i guess in the same way that you would move from just that kind of family culture of reading aloud and enjoying stories and enjoying music together and all of the things that you naturally do with little children. Um, When you start to do more formal lessons, especially in a Charlotte Mason education where, you know, it's still a lot of the time looks like reading books and, you know, reading together and then, you know, and then talking about them, um, you know, it's not like, well, we stop doing this and then we start doing this completely different thing. It seems to me like there's a really good continuum, um, particularly if you have made the effort to, you know, to create a a family culture where these things are happening and poems, especially, I mean, they, I mean, we have poems that are just kind of like part of our family language and they're not really, they're not nursery rhymes and, but they're not like, high literature either. I mean, we, we like comic poems a lot because, I don't know, we like to laugh. We like funny stuff. And someone gave us a book years ago called Marguerite Go Wash Your Feet, which is by an author named Wallace Tripp. And it's a collection of 
funny poems mm. from different places. And I mean, you know, what's in my fund of in my memory fund of poems? Well, Marguerite, go wash your feet. The board of health's across the street. Um, when I sat next to the Duchess at tea, it was just as I feared it would be. Her rumblings abdominal were something phenomenal, and everyone thought it was me. You know, I mean, these are not like, you know, high thoughts, obviously. We're not aspiring to nobility here, but everybody in my family knows those poems. And we know instinctively, like, how rhyme works, how meter works, mm -hmm. how to make a limerick. And the thing about funny poetry, comic poetry, is that usually what makes it funny is its absolute precision in terms of meter and rhyme. I mean, you can't have it be sloppy because it's not funny um, unless you're Ogden Nash, in which you can have one, you know, a perfectly metered poem and then one line that just kind of runs on because you're being funny about it. But, um, but typically comic poetry is extremely tight in terms of its craft. So it's a great way to just sort of get in your ear and your pulse and everything else that just an intuitive sense of what makes poetry poetry so that then when you sit down, you know, and it's your first day of official homeschool and you say, well, today we're going to read um, When I Went Down Beside the Sea by Robert Louis Stevenson. Well, everybody already kind of knows like, oh, that's a poem. You don't even have to tell me because it rhymes. It's not weird to me. Oh, okay. So right. we can concentrate on just like, yeah, right. When you're by the sea and you dig in the sand, the water comes up like that. That's so weird. It doesn't happen anywhere else. Um, you know, because you're not tripped up by the difference between that and prose. Yeah, and, and that's another. That's a really good example, I think, of that the, the blurry line between nursery rhymes and just real poetry because those Robert Louis Stevenson poems, I know I read them so often to my kids, you know, I've had most of them memorized in, in right. my own mind and they come up, they come up in life a lot. I mean, you're, you're putting a child on a swing or you're walking right. in the autumn <laughs> and you're, you're just doing something and suddenly you're, you're speaking out those words and I'm an adult, and yet, um, you know, they're still very um, pertinent to my experience in life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. The way that your poems, especially when they, when you have assimilated them into yourself, um, you know, they become like an articulation of not just that speaker's experience, that child who happens to be going up in the swing in, you know, the Victorian era, but your experience, you know, as a child on a swing or your experience as a person pushing a child on a swing and, you know, here in the present, you know, that those words are able to articulate your experience just as much as they are the speaker's experience, which is, I think, one of the things that makes poetry um, important and potent for us, because it's not like, oh, I can't relate to that person's you know, experience, but it, you know, it's like if you're walking along and something happens, maybe those words come into your mind and you think, oh yeah, this is like that. You know, you're making those connections, that Charlotte yeah, Mason yeah. kind of connection. Um, 
you know, one of the things, and maybe this is because we have our culture is more and more people are being, you know, taught poetry as, you know, a, a scientific problem. How, you know, how, how do we tear this poem apart? How many syllables? And, and I, I think there's a place and a time to say to your child, oh, how many right. syllables are in this line? Especially if they've been around poetry all their lives. And right. they're ready. They're ready to, or or and I think they quite accidentally find out some of that stuff. Um, but anyway, I think we have a whole culture of people because I have moms talk to me frequently and say, "Well, I don't want to teach poetry. It's boring, and I don't like it. Do you really think it's that important?" And I always say, "I I really think it's one of the most important things that we do." <laughs> and and give yourself a chance to maybe fall in love with it. How would you respond to that? That um, to the mom who prob- who just doesn't like poetry, right? I think. I mean, <laughs> in real life, I probably wouldn't know what to say until thirty minutes after yeah. I had gone home. <laughs> uh, but, um, sure. I think you know. I think if I were if I were thinking, I would ask why she doesn't like it. And I, but I would anticipate that the answer probably would have to do with the fact that maybe she first encountered it in high school. And so like her introduction to something like stopping by woods on a snowy evening, I mean, that's the classic one, right? Everybody comes out of English class after they've read that poem disillusioned because, you know, for a minute there, they just kind of <laughs> thought it was this beautiful poem about a moment, but no, the guy wants to kill himself. It's about death you know, because the teacher said so. And either you think, oh, okay, I guess I see that. Well, then I don't like this that much because <laughs> I don't want to kill myself right now and now I'm depressed. Right, right. Um, or you think, well, I don't see that at all, but the teacher says that that's the answer, so I just must be stupid. I just must not be able to read this. Uh. And so... In your mind, yes. it becomes, I mean, this, I feel like this was my math experience. Like, I, you know, from almost day one, this just is arbitrary. I don't see why you got this answer. Doesn't have anything to do with anything that I can see on the page. I just must be dumb and I can't learn this and I hate it. The end. So I'm going to write a horse story now and you can just go on <laughs> teaching multiplication. I'll catch up with you later. Um, and I do, I mean, you know, I, it is so easy to come away defeated almost before you start with something. And especially if there's nobody like right there on hand to, to help you out of that experience, which if you're a kid in school, I mean, you're just kind of at sea with so many things. And, um, and so you do just, you just think, I can't do this. I don't like it. It's hard. It's boring. Everything's about suicide, apparently. Um, what does that have to do with me? Um, I mean, the poet Dana Joya, who is, he's a contemporary poet. He was the director of the National Endowment for the Arts under the second Bush administration. And he's currently the poet laureate of California and has written this essay, which I know I talked to you about in a previous yes. conversation called Poetry as Enchantment. And his thesis basically, well, one of them anyway, it's kind of a complex essay, is that if the first 
place that you encounter poetry is as like this dissection specimen in your high school classroom, then of course you're not going to like it. So mm -hmm. the teaching of poetry in his estimation or the, you know, the sort of integration of poetry into the culture has to start with taking a step back and just meeting poems as something pleasurable. He talks about growing up um, as a child in a very um, sort of working class family, working class area in California. As he says, he says, you know, I was just surrounded by ugliness. It was an ugly town. The houses were ugly. Every, you know, things were ugly. People were poor. Um, but there was a poem that his mother and his parents were, I think his mother was, was maybe, um, had come from Mexico. She wasn't, I think, a first generation, or she was like, I don't know, first generation immigrant. English wasn't her first language. That's what I was trying to say. Um, and I'm going to forget what the poem was, but there was a poem that she had picked up somewhere and committed to memory, and she would just say it. And one of his childhood memories was of her just reciting this poem proudly and with obvious pleasure and enough that he memorized it just listening to her and, you know, was kind of mesmerized by it. And so all of this, you know, what I, you know, I've been saying about poetry as a part of your family culture. I mean, I'm really, I really am kind of cribbing this from Dana Joya a little bit, although I thought this before I read Poetry's Enchantment and heard him speak about these things. Just that, I mean, you have to encounter poetry as just an experience, not as a study. Yeah, he so that article that you're you're referring to is called Poetry as Enchantment and right. it's at his it's his website which is d a n a g i o i a .com Dana Joya is that what how you mm -hmm. Okay. Right. So this is an excellent article on poetry if um any one of the things that um I quoted from here which goes along with what you're saying is he talks about Robert Frost it's pithy right. definition, and he says he calls poetry a way of remembering. Um, mm -hmm. That that is when you talk about him with his mother, and you talk about um, our human experience. A way to it says here to a way to preserve our human experience. Um, it, it that is so true. I don't know why poetry works like that. But it's it's worth I think for for people who maybe aren't as fond of it to to find out why it works like that or maybe um, just give it a chance to work like that because we are in a way we we lose that a little bit in our technological culture we we lose we're losing a little bit I think and I don't like to be constantly wringing my hands but we do have to work a little bit harder to preserve the past and to preserve um, the things that are worth remembering. Right, right. Yeah, because, I mean, we didn't just sort of spring out of nowhere. <laughs> I mean, our language didn't spring out of nowhere. Mm, exactly. Um, our thoughts themselves didn't spring out of nowhere. I mean, we are formed by... Um, intellectual tradition and literary tradition and history, you know, in ways a lot of us just aren't even aware of, 
you know, because things just have been so, you know, I guess enculturated. They're just, you know, we just think they're part of us, but we don't think about where they, that they came from somewhere. Yeah, and we think a story as passing on culture, but poetry may be a hook that that causes story to stick with us a little bit longer. Like like you're speaking of in these epic poems, or um, your your the story of this um, uh, what what was his name that you, your Walsingham Rick Rickaldus Rickaldus yeah, Rick, Rick Aldous. Rick Aldous, um, yeah. That, um, you're <laughs> sorry, that's a hard. But um, but yes. we but poetry has a hook there that maybe is a little bit more of a firmer hook than, than just plain um, story for our um, own um, memories and memorization. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our poetic devices really, you know, come from that. Yeah, I mean, I know even as I'm, I'm a big fan of poetry. I mean, I'm someone who, who reads poetry daily. I read it to my children. Mm -hmm. I read it to my students. Um, but I, even I get tripped up when someone starts talking about trochees or, um, um, <laughs> I got, I got those, you know, I've got the IMs down, but when I just right. hit a, when I just hit a poem and I'm trying to decide, is this going up or down or up or down or, you know, right. I, I, it really bogs me down and I get, you know, kind of <laughs> tense and upset about it because right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the, you know, I got the syllables, but is the syllable, you know, this kind of syllable or that kind of syllable, um, but I right. don't. I don't think that people should let that that keep them from, you know, just having those rhythms in their heart. Right. Exactly. And a lot of that can be really subjective. I mean, two people reading a line aloud might not necessarily emphasize the same syllables in the same way. So even, I mean, yeah. I mean, I you know, I think scanning poems is fun and it can be really revelatory when you're thinking about how layers of meaning are working together and how it's all resonating. But if you, if you come away from an encounter with a poem and you just think, well, the whole reason for this poem's existence is so that I can agonize over whether that's a stressed or an unstressed syllable and how many there are, I mean, boring, you know? Yes, I mean, that's yes. like, I mean, this is exactly like what, you know, I mean, this is a version of that sawdust that Charlotte Mason talks about, you know, where you have um, facts stripped of their informing ideas or their clothing ideas, whatever exactly her phrase is. Uh, you know, to approach a poem to do that stuff before you've even had a chance to encounter it on any other level really is like, well, we've just sort of distilled this down to some bare facts and here you go enjoy right have your sawdust yeah yeah and and, and there and we and I really don't think we could morally have a right to do that until we've um we have that strong foundation of it in our heart um, right. and then we're able to maybe to go those of us who find that fascinating and I do find it fascinating I just you know right. I, could, I can easily see how um it would uh, trip people up easily right. if they think that's right. all there is to poetry so so how do you approach poetry in your family is it basically um do you do you read um do you ever just like take a certain poet and and read through their work or do you just read different poems or do you do you have various techniques <laughs> well kind of all of the above at different times I mean right now I am having my kids um as part of their schoolwork 
you know, read a particular poem for a term. Um, my son read Robert Frost for the first term of this year. He's reading Carl Sandburg right now. Um, my 13-year-old daughter was reading um, Tennyson, and then, you know, and now she's reading Emily Dickinson, and I've already forgotten <laughs> who they're reading. In the, and they're kind of doing their own, <laughs> you know, living with poems themselves right now more than we're doing. I mean, I don't know, they're middle schoolers, and reading aloud and reciting a whole lot is not really flying at the moment. So, right, right. I mean, what I'm doing, my MO right now is, you know, that I give each of them a poem a week and they read it every day. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're longer poems, so it's good. They have a couple of days if they need to take it more slowly. But, you know, and I'll say today, read it to yourself aloud, you know, memorize mm-hmm. a stanza of it, um, you know, read it again. And so just the, you know, what I'm building up to is the idea that you don't just, and I know this is, I mean, with like narrated readings in Charlotte Mason, obviously you're reading once, you're narrating, you're assimilating it into yourself. But I really think that, you know, particularly with poetry, I mean, that slow reading principle applies, but you kind of have to repeatedly slow read it um, so that Oh, things I that agree. you I, notice I totally the first time. You know, it's kind of like nature study more than anything else. You know, you have to go back and keep observing the same thing to see how it changes and what it does and how it behaves. So we're kind of at that stage. But, you know, I was thinking, you know, when you asked about how we do poetry, we've done different things at different times. But there's one particular, I mean, it wasn't even as structured as a lesson, but a, like an experience that I had with my same two, my youngest kids, when they were probably maybe third and fourth grade. And we were reading, at that, at that point, I think we just were reading through anthologies and as part of our sort of morning time together. And so we'd find a poem and we'd read it out loud and we'd memorize it. And one day the poem that we read was Emily Dickinson's There Is No Frigate Like a Book. And this kind of took us to a different level, you know, than just we can read it out loud and understand it immediately because you can't get through the first line of that poem if you don't know what a frigate is. So we're like in our back room, we're reading the poem, we read the first line, there is no frigate like a book. Well, everybody looks at me like, well, what the heck? What does that even mean? What's a frigate? So we get up (laughs) and we process to the dictionary. So we look up frigate. Because we can't get any far. And I guess if I'd been thinking more, like I, I would have prepped the reading a little bit and defined it. But this was actually kind of fun. So we go to the dictionary and we discover that a frigate is a ship. Oh, right, of course. A frigate is a ship. Well, so we're still stuck. Like, there is no, there's no ship like a book. What? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, so what, the, you know, what does that mean? How, you know, how is a, how, what, what would a, book have in common with a ship and it wasn't like okay we're going to dig out the deeper meaning but just you kind of couldn't get to the second line if you didn't have some idea what the first line said just on a just on the level of basic understanding so i mean my right. my son really yeah right right so you know i wasn't you know we hadn't set out to dissect the poem but we had to do a little bit of that and so, you know, my, my son kind of said, oh, well, like when you read a book, it takes you places. Yes, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> um, and so that was, 
I mean, I don't even usually use literary terms that much until at least we're getting close to high school. Um, when I do teach things like metaphor and simile and, you know, the language that you use to talk about the, you know, the phenomena of language that are happen happening in a poem, um, because that does become useful. I usually, I mean, I don't do any of that with younger kids, but, you know, we already had this idea of, well, something's being compared to something else. So I said, well, this is what they call a metaphor. And he seized on that, and he's been like my kid who points out metaphors ever since, which is kind of fun. Um, I think that is a hugely important point because I see that in teaching younger kids. If we teach them simile and metaphor at a young age, they learn the technical definition, right. and then they kind of have this kind of, I know what it is. But right. um, they don't really have the experience that makes it meaningful. And I've seen right. that with my son also. He really grabbed on a couple years ago to the idea of metaphor and, mm -hmm. and it just the joy of it. And, and it, it was just me doing the same thing, kind of throwing it out there after years and years of poetry reading. And, right. and I do think that poetry, without saying this is a metaphor, poetry is the, our primary um tool for teaching metaphor and, and, right, and it's right. I think it's one of the most important things not so much the word metaphor but just learning to make comparisons or or to 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 make leaps of of understanding right. between unlike right. things right which we really we do all the time and you know I mean and, and in some sense learning that term as a way of describing what you already know like here's this thing we recognize this we compare things all the time well here's a name for it um, as opposed to, here's a list of literary terms, right, memorize right. them, and then try to identify them. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, and it's you can just, just turning, see that doesn't build love, right. There's no love lost there. Um, you know, now I know something, I can check it off. I've got my um, common core covered. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you too long, but I would love for you to um, read us uh, one of your poems or two, um, whatever okay. uh, you have prepared. It would really be awesome. I, I feel like we could talk for a long time. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a fun conversation. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Okay. Well, I picked two short ones um, okay. so that I could get two in. And this first one is one from... Um, a book of mine called Brief Light, Sonnets and Other Small Poems. And it's a poem, a couple of different years in Lent, I've set myself the discipline of writing a sonnet a day for the whole 40 days of Lent, um, which is a really mm. interesting kind of discipline to take. After a while, it's like you think of the entire world in terms of 14 lines and you hear everything <laughs> in iambic pentameter, you just... You know, and then it's like the earworm that won't quit. But this is one that I wrote, um, the last time I did this was in 2012. And, you know, you get up in the morning and you think, I have to write 14 lines about something before I go to bed tonight. So you seize on anything you can. And I seized on something that one of my children uh, was asking me that day. And actually, she asked me this a lot at that particular age. So... This poem is called For You. Am I your favorite, you want to know? And I say yes, as every breath I takes my favorite breath. If, say, you're eight, that makes you my favorite eight-year-old. 
ditto 10976.0. You were my favorite series of summer earthquakes, my favorite live weight centered on the cervix, my favorite sight unseen that year. And so you are my favorite child right now because you stand before me asking that my heart declare you first, you always. And it's true, it works this way. Love's strange elastic laws grant each child its undiluted part. And that, my love, is what I offer you. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> I actually read that last year at a conference in the presence of two of my children and one of them came up to me afterwards and said oh so she's your favorite kid <laughs> they just didn't get it did they? no actually at this moment you are that's what the poem's about <laughs> okay so the the second one that i'm going to read is from it's from the Rakeldis book Rakeldis of walsingham which is again it's a long poem that's divided into little sections and the way this works i gave each section a little title in Old English because part of, I don't know, what I, what I wanted to happen through the poem was that even though it moves around in history a lot, that the voice of Rickeldis, who was, she was a, a widow um, living at Walsingham. She was the one who prayed to receive these religious visions that eventually um, resulted in a shrine and, and in Walsingham's becoming this major pilgrimage site in the Middle Ages. It was actually second only to Canterbury as a visited pilgrimage site in medieval England. Um, but that even though it, it doesn't stay with her in history, I wanted something of her language to, to resonate through the different parts of the poem as it, as it sort of focuses in on different scenes, I guess, in the history. And so in this particular scene, I'll just, we're with um, a family. Um, it's kind of based on actually a photograph I took of my oldest daughter when we were there, when she was two. And the, the section of the poem is called, the Anglo-Saxon word is trines, which means trinity. Mm -hmm. Here, their little daughter kneels in a pale dress by a clump of bluebells, a small, cool fire. In this image, you see a trinity, child looked at, mother, father looking. One of them has got the camera. That the other hovers near can't be presumed, only hoped for. In those wet woods, the smell of rain, river, and stone is an atmosphere complete. Let's say they move in it, all three father, mother, child, the little trinity, perfect in itself, but meant to grow more life as the stones throw ripples go, widening over the river's fluid skin and always to the sea are hastening down. So mm. that was Trines. Oh, that was very beautiful. It, remi I, I, it reminds me of another poem I, I love, but I can't even think of the name of it right now, but that about the sea hastening. Oh, man. Anyway, beautiful, beautiful po poetry. And um, where, if we wanted to, um, do you have a place, are, are you on Amazon or do you, um, do you have a publisher that we can order your poems um, from? 
I do. Um, my publisher is Finishing Line Press, and the website is just all of that together, Finishing Line Press, all one word, dot com. Um, and I actually have two chat books that, that they publish, um, Fallen Water, which is still available. It came out in 2015, and then Rikeldis just came out in, in November. And um, I know Fallen Water is also on Amazon. Rikeldis probably isn't yet. Okay, well, that's wonderful. Um, to end up the podcast here, I wanted to ask you two questions. Number one, okay. what do you have a favorite Christmas song or poem that you like? Oh, wow. <laughs> I have so many favorites. You know, probably I, I, I have two sort of number one favorite. They're both favorites. Two number one favorite um, Christmas poems that when people ask for poems <laughs> for their kids to memorize, these are usually the two that I think of. One is, right. <clears throat> excuse me, one is G.K. Chesterton's Christmas Carol, which I just think is is so beautiful and my kids memorized it to recite to my mother the year that they were probably I don't know first and second or second and third grade but I mean it's not a little child's poem necessarily um, the other is a poem called the animals carol by a poet named Charles Cosley who's maybe less known um, Dana Joya has a really good essay about him on his website as well um, but he was a Cornish poet who died in about I think he died in 2003 or 2004, right about the time we left England, who wrote just wonderful, you know, great to read aloud. I mean, poems for children, but also adults. His grown-up poems aren't really that different from his children's poems. But that's a wonderful poem to read for Christmas. Well, those are that's excellent ideas, especially for Advent right now. And um, I'm thinking, I love your idea of what you did for Lent. People that could also translate if anybody wanted to do something like that. I mean, I've never even thought of that as a, a kind of a spiritual discipline to write a poem. <laughs> so it I teaches love you a lot. I t <laughs> I'm sure, especially like you said, where each day you have to look at the world a little differently to come up with something new. That That's fascinating. Um, and my final question is, uh, what are you reading right now? All of our listeners are kind of book junkies, so it's <laughs> always a good question yeah, to ask. Yeah, oh, I'm going to blank now. I'm reading a bunch of things. I mean, I'm rereading Barbara Pym's Excellent Women. I'm not necessarily uh. reading a whole lot of poetry right now. Um, I've been, I just finished reading a book of essays about poetry, um, excuse me, called The Secret of Poetry by Mark Jarman, who is another, he's a contemporary American poet and was actually a teacher of mine as an undergraduate. And um, it's just, it's a, he's an amazing poet, but also an amazing writer about poetry. And so I've really, The Secret of Poetry came out it's maybe about 20 years old now, but I had read it a long time ago. I'm a big rereader. <laughs> um, I just have been kind of revisiting that. Um, gosh, I have a bunch of books going and I can't even think what they all are right now. They're stashed all over my house. I, I and I just keep picking question. up various anthologies of poetry and, you know, reading what, uh, reading what, yeah. what it opens to. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have a hard time when people ask me what I'm reading because it's like uh, it's it's like my it's all scattered in my brain in different places and I have to go search all over for it. But um, <laughs> that's uh, right. Yeah, but, you know, in ten minutes I'll know exactly. But <laughs> yes, yeah, that's kind of a, a cruel question, I think, uh, uh, after a deep conversation. But well, Sally, <laughs> thank you so much for for being on the podcast. We it's been oh, well, a great thank you. conversation. I, yeah. You have such a, a, a intimate knowledge of poetry because you practice the art, not just um, talk about it. So um, it's it's wonderful for us to hear um, your perspective. So thank you very much. Thank you.